It's a glorious thing to um, welcome members into the body of Christ. And if you're uh, new with us this morning, maybe that question of, of member, uh, being a member or membership is on your mind or heart. And maybe you think to yourself, I'm not sure I want to be a member of a local body. I mean, I'm a member of Costco already. And <laughs> And I'm a member of this organization and that organization. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about memberships like that. When, when the scripture uses the language of membership to describe our relationship to the body, it, it's referring to the way a hand is attached to an arm. And the way an arm is attached to a torso. And, and it means to say that we are so united to one another in Christ that this member can't have the life that it's supposed to have if it's not connected to the rest of the body. That's how vital membership is and what it means to be a member in a body. So if you're thinking, oh, this is just a way to get dues and <laughs> a way to get certain uh, you know, privileges or responsibilities, yes, both of those things go along with being a member of a body, but I want you to see it's a part of what it means to be a Christian, is to be a part of his body. The Bible doesn't know of a people who are saved, who are not connected to one another with this thing called the church. Um, as we grow in our relationship with Christ, we grow in our relationship with the church. We grow in our love for the church. It's not because the church is perfect. Heaven knows it's not perfect. It's a mess most of the time. The recognition, though, is as we grow in relationship to the church and in love for the church, we're growing closer to the heart of Christ because you know what Christ loves? Christ loves his church. And he loves us not because we're perfect. He loves us because he loves us. And he's committed to making us perfect. And the people who believe that and are trusting in that will begin to fall head over heels in love with Christ's church in the way Christ has for his church. Well, wasn't even planning to say all that so that you get that for free this morning. Um, but I think it's important as we look at Genesis chapter 25 today that you acknowledge and recognize that we're about to read a passage of Scripture that I'm just going gonna, gonna to go out on a limb and say is not your favorite, at least the first part of Genesis 25, because it's a bunch of names. It's what we call genealogy in the Scripture. Right? You don't have many coffee stains on this page, because you had not been on this page very, very much, right? Uh, this is not your, your, your reading or normal fare as you often approach the Bible. But what we're actually doing when we read genealogy, you know, Part of what we're doing, we're, we're doing what we did with when we introduced new members. We're speaking about the lineage of faith and the family of God. And God so loves his people throughout the ages that he doesn't just love them generally. He loves them name by name. He loves them individually. He loves them personally. And that's critical. And part of what we're seeing in Genesis 25, when we work through those names, I want you to see this. You're not just seeing some archaic names of some, some pre-Israelite people, and, and they're so far removed culturally, and, and I'm going to stumble through some of the pronunciations. I hope they're close as we work through it. When we do that, we're, we're not just reading names. I want you to know Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that anyone who has trusted in Christ is by faith a child, a son or a daughter of Abraham. We're in the lineage of faith. Do you know what we're about to read? 
lineage of faith. You know who you're about to read about? Your family of old. This is ancestral. So as we approach it, approach it with that mindset. Approach it with that heart. We're, we're doing a deep dive into ancestry and into descendants. And God cares about where we've come from and his line of redemption. And so let's give our attention to it in that, in, with that mindset as we turn to Genesis 25, beginning in verse 1 and extending to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Joshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Lamimim. The sons of Midian were Ephah and Epher and Hanok and Abida and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, at the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Berla Haroi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Abbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Naphish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethiel, the Aramim, and Padam of Aram, the sister of Laden the Aramean to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to a choir of the Lord and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. First came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. 
Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name is called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord in heaven, as we spend the next few minutes in this passage which we have just read, we are asking for you to come and to make known to us, plain and clear to us, the things that you would have us to know. Lord, we are in desperate need of hearing your voice. For we recognize that we don't live by bread. We don't live by lentil soup. We live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Lord, we've come to hear from you. Come now and speak to us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I actually wrote this week in the pastoral notes of a great opportunity that I had earlier in the week to just speak on children and the importance of of children at a local school and and was reminded as I was preparing for that just how treacherous our day and time is to be a child, especially in North America with so much of these legislative turns that we've seen and comments that have been examined. It was, you know, so been so grieving really over the last several several weeks, um, reading the news and recognizing that we live in a culture that celebrates death more than life. And so I reflected on, on that and was preparing that talk I mentioned in those pastoral notes. The fact that I had a little, oh, I don't know, a little, I guess the nice word would be a little tiff with one of my children. Yes, a little disagreement with, with one of my children and lost my temper, got a little angry. And um, it was in the middle of preparing for this, this talk and I, I walked, a, you know, walked away from that moment was kind of brooding in my self-righteousness over being right and they being wrong and you know as God would have it he's so kind he's so kind I look back at Psalm 127 which I'm planning to speak on and children are a heritage from the Lord you know and I, I can't speak on this if I if I'm sitting here not at peace with one of my my own children and I call the family together and confess my sin and ask for their forgiveness in that and the Lord opened up many sweet pathways for us to talk about the gospel and the importance of the gospel and it actually added a dimension to my talk. The dimension to my talk as I returned Psalm 127 verse 3 with a clearer conscience was, listen as dads and as parents we're going to often fail our children and our calling as parents is not to be perfect in our parenting, but to lead them to the perfect parent, the Heavenly Father. And when we show we need Him, 
and we lead them to need him, we have done our work. We have done our work. Now, I had to get there through a hard path, right? Have you ever had that, a moment like that before in your life? Yes. You, you that are acting like you haven't had that moment, you, you have real problems. You know that. <laughs> You've got to start being honest with me when we're, this is a safe, honest space that we're in right here. We, no, those are, those are real moments, aren't they, in our, in our lives and was humbled uh, in that. But it was good being here in Genesis chapter 25 and recognizing that we're about to enter what is arguably the most conflict-ridden section in the whole of the Bible, the story of Jacob. Um, the story of Jacob is a story that lasts at 10 chapters in the book of Genesis. It begins here in Genesis 25. It extends to Genesis 35. It's, it's hemmed in by two genealogies. As we've discussed before in our series of, of the book of Genesis, there are ten genealogies in the book of Genesis. Each of those genealogies are what we would call seams in the book. They come at the end of one section, usually the end of one patriarch's life and legacy, and the beginning of a new patriarch's life and legacy. So a- Abraham's just died, and what do we have? A genealogy. And we have the genealogy of his two sons. And then we have opening up, verse 19, the book of the generations of Isaac. It's a new story. It's a new story, and it's going to last 10 chapters, and then it's going to end with a genealogy. And guess where we're going to go? We're going to go to Joseph. And then we have the story of Joseph, and then the book will end in that way. So genealogy is really critical in the book of Genesis. It tells us we're at a seam. We're at a theological seam. We're closing one thing, and we're opening up another This particular scene in the book of Genesis is riddled with conflict. In fact, when you think of the story of Jacob, I'm sure that you think in large part about conflict. Let me just hit some of the high points of the conflict in the next 10 chapters that we'll be looking at together. This chapter, uh, the birth and conception, the conception and the birth of Esau and Jacob and the birthright story. What is that but conflict? We're going to come back to it in 27 when Jacob steals this birthright from Esau through manipulative and deceptive means. In chapter 29, though, Jacob and Laban have all kinds of conflict over the marrying of of Leah and Rachel and all of the confusion and deception that goes into that conflict. In Genesis 29 and 30, we have tension between Leah and Rachel because Leah's having too many children and Rachel's not having any. There's tension. Genesis 30, Jacob and Rachel get a little sideways with each other because they're trying to figure out how to um, bring about Rachel's children and Rachel's frustrated and exasperated with, uh, with Jacob. In Genesis 32, Jacob actually, at one of the high points of the narrative, has a, a wrestling match, a bit of a fight, a bit of a tussle with this mysterious character known as the angel of the Lord. It's in Genesis 32. Then in Genesis 34, the whole section ends going up to Genesis 35 with Jacob having some falling out with his sons over the very sad event of the defiling of Dinah. Now, we're going to come back to all of those stories in the days ahead, but um, that was a lot of mess. That's a lot of conflict. In all of that conflict, you know what the Lord is doing? He's weaving a redemptive story. He's weaving a redemptive story. 
Now, that's, that's what we want to pay attention to as we go through and highlight and acknowledge the, the downsides and the underbelly of human nature as it's going to come out in technicolor in the weeks to come as we work through these chapters. We want to recognize that God is bringing peace even out of the midst of this conflict. And if you look at your own life, it's often true, isn't it, that the greatest work the Lord has done has been in those moments of conflict and difficulty. And that peace is often won on the back of conflict. And there's a reason for that. Because as we look over the story of the whole Bible, we see that the greatest peace that was ever won for us came at a climactic moment of conflict. And out of that conflict came the greatest peace. So wherever you are entering into this passage this morning, you, you either will be at a place of conflict or you are at a place of conflict. And I want you to know, if you're in that place right now, it may be because you have just sinned royally. And that's why you're in the midst of the conflict. And because of that, the Lord would call you this day to begin to make amends and to work towards a pattern of repentance. But conflict may be in your life because you are doing things right. And it may not be a sign of God's disappointment or disapproval or his dismay. It may be that you're walking faithfully and the ruptures are leading to new dimensions of redemption. We'd presume entering chapter 25 that we're entering in on a bit of a high point. Isaac and Rebecca have just been married. Wedding bells are in the background of this particular text. He's just taken Rebecca into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he has wed her. Isaac and Rebekah are now husband and wife. The beautiful love story that we looked at last week together from Genesis chapter 24. It's a high point. So we kind of expect what's going to happen in 25. We would expect the sound of a baby crying would come pretty soon in the text based upon the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. We wouldn't just presume that because of the natural order of things. Uh, marriage and then children. We would presume that because of the supernatural order of things. Isaac is the promised son of Abraham. Abraham was promised a lineage and a descendants that would be as, as, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand along the seashore. He has Isaac, this promised seed that has come forth from his loins. Now Isaac, the mantle of this promised son sits upon him. He is the one who we would expect would be that Psalm 127 man whose quiver is full of children. That's who we'd expect him to be, right? As we enter in, it's not what we see. You know how long they've been married? Did you catch that? 20 years. 20 years. That's a good reminder. You might turn a page in your Bible, but you might have turned a decade or two when you did. That's the case between Genesis 24 and 25. 20 years have gone by and Isaac and Rebekah have no children. Rebekah is barren. Interestingly, it echoes Isaac's father's story at this point. Abraham and, and Sarah's story, who waited for years and years and years for the promised son. Finally, Isaac came, maybe in the back of Isaac's mind. I don't think it's a far stretch to assume this. In the back of Isaac's mind, he's thinking, how long am I going to have to wait? My dad had to wait. He was 100 years old. At this point, Isaac is nearing 60. 
He married Rebecca when he was 40. He's not a spring chicken anymore. And, and if, if we will, if we could say it this way, Rebecca has her own biological clock ticking here. There's concern and even anguish that's underneath the recognition of this barrenness. The promised son is without a seed. Meanwhile, back on the farm, if you look back at the earlier part of the text in the genealogy, which we're not going to spend much time on this morning, I do ask you a couple of questions in your taking the message home at the back of your bulletin to ponder, because there's so much to talk about in the genealogy, but, well, you know I only have so much time. So we're going to focus on this latter part. But if you look at the genealogy in the section verses 12 to verse 18 where we see Ishmael's lineage, I want you just to notice something about Ishmael's lineage. To add insult to injury, Isaac with no child, Ishmael has how many? Twelve sons. Twelve. So let's just paint a picture. Promised son, the legacy of salvation extending through him, Rejected son, the legacy of paganism, rebellion, 12 sons. That's the picture as we enter into the text. Increasingly so, even in the description of the genealogy, these sons of Ishmael are nothing to laugh at. You know the language that's used to describe them in verse 17 is they are princes. They are rulers of vast authorities and people. They tell people what to do. They're, they're, they're moving around things. They're shaking things up. They're in charge. These are, these are strong men. So I want you to just think Isaac and Rebekah, and then there's Ishmael and his horde. Nothing seems to be happening here. What's the question of the text? Is God going to be faithful to his promise? Is God going to be faithful to his promise? That's the question of this day. It's a question that we've seen over and over and over in the context of the book of Genesis. Because it's not just humiliating personally. It's troubling spiritually. Because God doesn't seem to be coming through. You'd almost expect Isaac and Rebekah to make the mistake of Abraham and Sarah at this point, wouldn't you? You remember what Abraham and Sarah did when they waited so long? Sarah says, I have this maidservant named Hagar. I got a feeling she could help us with this childless thing. You, you almost half expect father like son here to begin to happen with Isaac and, and, and Rebecca. We don't see that, praise be to God, in this day. Instead, we see a really helpful move. In the midst of their dilemma and their struggle, they don't immediately jump and say, we should go get some counsel or some advice. Let's go see a fertility doctor. See if he can work this out for us. Nothing against a fertility doctor. What, what do they do? They pray. They pray. We're told that Isaac, seeing the barrenness of his wife, prays to the Lord and the Lord answers his request. Now, there's something beautiful in that. There's a testament in that. The testament that he acknowledges the Lord to be the giver of life. That this child is not just some ordinary child. This is a promised child that they're seeking. A child who would come forth and would bear the mantle 
for the next generation. This child is the one that they're praying for. That can't simply come through the means of human orchestration. It must come from the very sovereign hand of God. He must be the one that brings forth this child. Isaac knows that. Isaac turns and inquires of the Lord, and the Lord is the one who grants to them a child. Well, children. It's somewhat surprising if you had never read this text, which so many of you have, and you know the story, so it didn't hit you as surprising. But he prayed for a child, and then in verse 21, we're told the children inside of her. What? Children. Right? It didn't hit you that way because you've read this story. But he didn't just answer. He kind of blew expectations. He gave them two children. This must have been the happiest moment in Isaac and Rebekah's life. Double the fun, double the joy. They're having two children. This mom who has waited now for 20 years has two children. God has been faithful to his promises. But the happiness is not there in the text. You see, as you read this text, it keeps surprising you if you actually engage it at surface level and begin to enter it rather than read it with what you already know. If you enter it with the awareness and the openness of the twists and the turns, it's very surprising. There's no, there's no for instance, laughter in the text. What's Isaac's name mean? Laughter. The Lord has given me laughter, Sarah said, when the promised son comes. You would expect that the promised son of, of now Jacob coming forth and, and this, this child in pregnancy from Rebekah would, would form laughter. We don't see that. What we hear as a commentary is this, verse 21. The children struggled together within her. Struggle. Pain. Actually, conflict. The Hebrew word used there for, for struggle, you mothers will appreciate this, it doesn't mean the babies were, were gently kicking. She wasn't going, hey honey, come, come watch my belly go crazy because of these little kicks. It's really quite amazing. It wasn't that kind of sweet um, moment as a, as a husband and a wife anticipating the birth of their children might, might do. No, the language is is actually translated in other places in the context of war for crushing. One translator suggested that we could translate it this way. The children smashed themselves together inside of her. This is a wrestling match. This is a battleground. The language of the text is rising to the quality of violence. We, we know that that was Rebecca's experience, as undoubtedly she talked to some ladies around her. Is this normal? Um, well, there's parts of this that are normal, like the baby moving. What yours are doing? No. Uh, there's nothing normal about that. She must have acknowledged that, because where does she actually go? She goes to a place of prayer. She begins to pray over what she's experiencing internally in her womb. Now, just need to note this only because I feel like I won't be faithful to the text if I don't, but we won't camp out here because we've spent a little time already on this. This is the third time in two chapters we've seen um, Isaac and, and Rebecca and this story move towards prayer as the answer to their difficulties. You, you remember when the servant was going to look for Isaac? A wife in the hometown of Abraham and he shows up at the spring. What does he do? 
prays, and the Lord answers his prayer. They're, they don't have a child 20 years later. What do they do? They inquire of the Lord. The Lord answers. She struggles with the pregnancy. What does she do? She inquires of the Lord, and the Lord answers. This is, you catching that? That's a good rhythm. That's a good rhythm. It's instructive in its description. It's meant to show us the pattern of the believing heart who in the moments of their struggles and their questions and their doubts, they're making quick pivot in prayer to the Lord. The question that Rebecca raises here, though, is, a, is actually a, a desperate cry. Look at it in verse 22. She asks, if it is thus, speaking of the pregnancy, if it is thus, if it is like this, why is this happening to me? Like, why, why, Lord, what is going on? It's as if she is questioning like one who is going through crisis and can't make sense of what's going on, of the Lord's hand. She's under tremendous duress. And the Lord answers in verse 23, and he says, there's a reason why all that activity is happening in you. There are not just two children in your womb, but there are two nations in your womb. There are two peoples within you that shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now there it is, the, the namesake for the title of the sermon that I'm giving right now. The clash of the two seeds continues. Right, those of you who've been with us in the book of Genesis can begin to hear it. Two nations Two peoples divided, one stronger than the other, the younger serving the older. What does this echo back? Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. One shall, shall bruise the other on the, the heel. The seed of the, of the serpent bruising the seed of the woman on the heel. The seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, the language of tussle, of conflict, of two people groups, two lines, a seed theology that's running throughout the book of Genesis. You see, this prophecy is just simply echoing what we've always known. That with these two brothers, we have a story that's similar to Isaac and Ishmael. With these two brothers, we have a story that's similar to Cain and Abel. With these two brothers, we're going to have a story that's similar to the story to come between Joseph and his brothers. The first child that's born to Rebecca, well, let's just put it this way. He was unusual in appearance. He's described as having a red, hairy cloak upon him. He sweatered in red hair. That's, that's what the text is, is. Literally could be translated. He sweatered, as it were, in, in redness. This man is a hairy beast coming out of Rebekah. And thus his name is given Esau. A name that just means red. It just means red. Later in the text, we're given that little parenthetical comment with regards to the stew. And we're told that the people of Esau are called Edomites. The, the red people. So it's the same, same language that's being described here. The redness is what speaks of, of Esau. But even before Esau has completely emerged, we have Jacob holding on to his heel, clinging to Esau. 
the, the wrestling match that's been going on on the inside is now emerging on the outside. They didn't even call a truce for the birth to take place. In the midst of the birth, the conflict ensues. And not surprisingly, it's meant to show us that the conflict that's been going on in Rebecca is now going to have repercussions of conflict outside of Rebecca. And, and not surprisingly, the text begins to display that even with the parents. Isaac and Rebekah, we're told there at the end of the section, verses 27 and 28, that Esau's a very different man from Jacob. He's a, he's a manly man. He's a, he's a hunter. He's, um, he, he's, he goes out and he catches the game and he brings it back. And, 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 and um, Jacob is a mama's boy. He loves the tents. He's a quiet man. He, he prefers to be on the indoors rather than the outdoors. And, and uh, then we're told, Isaac really liked Esau. And Rebecca really liked Jacob. Well, what's happening there? If we have these two, two nations, two peoples coming out, and we have two parents that are aligning with one or the other, what's bound to happen? conflict. The same kind of conflict that we're going to see continue to unfold uh, through the passage. A wedge is being placed at the very center of this family, which is why the next story simply reveals the unfolding of what we expected would be the case. This is a conflict between these two men that's going to have reverberating consequences. Here comes Esau, weary, famished. He's coming in from the field, probably killed some game. And there's Jacob at the stove making the stew. And as Esau smells the stew, famished as he is coming from the field, he demands the language is, let me have some of that soup, some of that stew that you're making. Some of that, what kind of stew? Well, it describes it in two ways. Lentil stew, but before that, red. Red. Now, don't pass that by. This is a stew that matches Esau. This is, this is let me put it in language that you'll understand. This is his kryptonite. This is, this is a weakness. This is, this is a temptation. This is probably a scheme. More, more than likely a plot of getting to a place where Jacob, who undoubtedly is operating from knowledge of the prophecy pre-birth. What does he go after here? The birthright. What is he, what's been prophesied? That the younger, Jacob, would have authority over the older. Jacob's going for that authority. Jacob's maneuvering. Jacob's scheming here. He's, he's plotting. And he, he, it sounds as if he's got a pretty good read on his brother's heart. My brother's going to come in. He's going to be hot. He's going to be sweaty. He's going to be famished. He's going to want something to eat. He's going to be vulnerable. He's going to be vulnerable. And in that moment where he smells the lentil stew and he looks into its redness, he might be willing to make a deal. Jacob comes up with a deal and he says, yes, I'll be happy to give you some of my little soup. Just sell me your birthright. Just sell me your birthright. 
And the, the, the response of, of Esau is, is classic, isn't it? He, well, I'm, I'm going to die if I don't get something to eat around here. So what good is a birthright going to do if you're going to die? Sure, just have, just, yeah, go ahead and have my birthright. Give me some stew. It's classic. Now, there's not one scholar out there. I looked high and low and read every which way. There's not one scholar who really believes that Esau's about to die. All right? Nobody's going to say he's not really about to die. You know what this is? This is when your children come in from school. And they go, I'm starving to death. You know, and they look in the pantry. And they're looking. They're like, i got to have something to eat. I'm going to die if I don't have anything to eat. So you ate two hours ago. I'm going to die if I... That's, that's this moment. The, what this is, is it's an appeal to, it's a recognition that, that Esau what? He's a, he's a man that's given over to his appetites. Uh, Jacob knew that he could exploit this situation. This is a man who's been known instinctually and impetuously to go for that which he feels and he wants and, and do it and even be willing to pay a significant, exorbitant exploitive price for it. Let, let's put it in, in just the brass tacks of what is actually taking place here. Esau, if you will give me your entire future, I can offer you 30 minutes of satisfaction with a full belly. And somehow or another, in Esau's frame of thinking, that made sense in the moment. That made sense to him. Now that's one of the things that you're going to see throughout the story of Jacob is this perception, the ability to see. The ability to see what it is you see and then to value the right thing by virtue of your choices. You see, Jacob saw something. One of the reasons that you see Jacob as we go through the ups and downs of Jacob's life and why, how we see God work in the life of Jacob because we see transformation within him over the course of time. One of the things that you see, for all of his conniving and skeeving and manipulative ways, he's not our favorite character in the Bible. You know, I would be worried, actually, if someone said, oh, yeah, my favorite character is Jacob. I just want to be just like Jacob. You know, like, no, no, you don't want to be just like Jacob. There's lots of character issues there. Part of the example and the beauty of what the Bible's teaching with Jacob is to display the fact that our salvation is not based upon our perfections. And that God's use of this is not, use of us is not bound by our wickedness. That God can even come and override and use us despite the weakness of our character and our sinfulness. Praise be to God. That, we need that hope, brothers and sisters. Because that's true of every single one of us in this room. We need that hope. That's one of the lessons, one of the many that we'll have to explore as we work our way through. But one of the things we're saying is that Jacob actually sees the thing of value. He sees the thing of value. For all the manipulation, he's actually after the thing that has value. Esau misses that entirely. Isn't it interesting that the commentary of this passage, it doesn't say, oh, what a bad person Jacob was for manipulating and exploiting Esau. Now, that's true. But what's the commentary of the passage? Verse 34, thus Esau despised his birthright. That's the commentary. What the Bible emphasizes is the fact that in the moment where the, the decision was this simple, soup or salvation, 
He went with soup. He went with soup. Now, we see that starkly in the moment in the context of this passage, and we think, what a fool. You are right. He is an utter fool. He does not see what it is that he is doing. He's, he is a man who has valued the things of this world, and he has valued instant gratification and the appetites of the flesh over eternal satisfaction and the inheritance of the heavenlies. That's his value system. You've probably been at a place, even whether in your own life or in relationship with another, where you see the decisions that they make and how they make them, and you think to yourself, what is it that they're doing? They're destroying their lives. They continue to do this thing that makes no sense whatsoever. It's gonna, it, you can see it. Everybody else can see it, but they can't see it. That's this moment. Maybe you've been that person. Where by God's grace along the way, you found yourself feeding the pigs with the pods and you came to your senses and you realized, I need to go home to my father. This makes no sense what I'm doing. This is craziness. Sin makes you crazy. One of the consequences of sin is insanity. This is insanity. He gave his entire legacy up to feel full for 30 minutes. That's what sin does. And when you look over the course of your life, you recognize that it would not for the grace of God. He's continually turning you away from insane choices to seeing again by his grace what's really valuable in life. That's the work. That's the work of grace over and over and over in our lives. Listen, don't be too hard though on Esau. Because right now, if your life and my life were truly opened up, every single week we make sinful decisions. And we're saying to ourselves, that's more valuable to me. That's more precious to me than to do what Jesus has called me to do which will lead in the path of righteousness, will woe by streams of water, will send me to soft meadows where I can feed and grass, where my soul and my life will be taken care of. No, I think I'll go for instant gratification rather than eternal satisfaction in Christ. Every single week we're doing that. You see, when you come to a moment in your life where you are tempted, you are placed within the crucible of where Esau is. Will I do what it is that God has called me to do or will I go with the appetite of the flesh? That's the question. So before we throw rocks in Esau's direction, we need to have a number of fingers pointing in our own. That we are Esau often in this passage. More times than not, and sadly, we're often not Jacob. In this sense. In that we don't see what's really the valuable choice. The, thing that, the only thing that makes sense worth choosing. We're never going to be perfect at that. Listen, we must pursue that. The Lord's calling us under the pursuit of that. But the fact of the matter is, we need someone who has actually done that for us. Someone who has faced the crucible of temptation towards instant gratification rather than enduring and eternal satisfaction and always chosen right. We need someone like that. We need someone who actually sees the value of eternity in the heavenlies, has the glory of his father on his mind, 
and is not interested in soup that is of the world standards, but says to us from the Gospels, it is my meat and my drink to do the will of the Father who is in heaven. That's Jesus Christ. That's who he is. You see, this is, you're never going to be able to do this. Why you need someone to have done this for you so that in his power, you can begin slowly but surely doing it. You need someone to be able to go before you by which to do that. He knows the crucible. Didn't he experience it in the wilderness? As he fasted for 40 days seeking his father's face and the evil one came with his temptation. Listen, you're strong enough to turn these rocks into bread. Why don't you just do it? Wasn't that the struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane? The night as he's facing towards the cross and he recognizes that everything within him wants to go the opposite direction. Oh, Father, if it possible, take this cup from me. But then in his wisdom and with strength says, though not my will, but your will be done. That's what we need. We, we need the Savior like that. This Savior, remarkably so, is the one who doesn't feed our fleshly appetites, but instead, by grace, teaches us how to put them to death. And in putting them to death, spreads before us a meal that will fully satisfy. Isn't that who Jesus is? That's what we have here this morning. A picture not of red or lentil soup, but of blood that was spilt. And bread that literally sticks to the ribs of your soul. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the true sustenance for the people of God. You see, that's the Savior that we need. And that's the Savior, by God's grace, we have. Friends, for all of the ways that maybe even right now, God, by His grace, is coming to you and He's showing you decisions that you're making, trajectories that you're on, through the pursuing of fleshly instant gratification or the pleasures and the comforts of this world, and you know that He's calling you onto a sacrifice, a sacrifice that will cause you to feel some hunger pains here, but of which will satisfy the eternal longings of your soul where you will be made new in the heavenly places, seeing Jesus Christ face to face, and you will be utterly at home and utterly satisfied. He's wooing you unto that pathway right now. And he wants you to say yes to the callings of his eternal longings that he's placed within you. And he wants you to bed down the appetites of the flesh. The question is today, what are those for you? Where do you go from this word from him into tomorrow and the next day? What are the things he's calling you to say no to? Because there's a greater thing to say yes to. What is he calling you to feel a little hunger pain around in order that you might feel a satisfying longing deep in your soul fulfilled by Christ? And how is he then coming to you and showing you that Jesus is better than all the soups that the world has to offer. Because Jesus doesn't just offer you temporary appeasement. Jesus offers you an eternal meal that if you eat it, he who does and she who does will never hunger and thirst again. That's what Jesus does. So by God's grace, as the Lord is pressing into us, we would become a people that more and more have found our sustenance in Christ. And when we get to the world that causes us, or tempts us, I should say, tempts us to choose soup over salvation, 
we'll be wiser. For we know the truth about the sustenance of Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would embed this reality. Embed it deep within us. And that more and more the reality of the sustenance of Christ and his satisfaction would become the reality of our daily living. Help us in every way to say no to the lusts of the flesh. And help us to say yes to the sustenance that is Christ. And ask in every way that you would meet us right there in the midst of temptation. And you would carry us through to perfect satisfaction. Enduring the cross as you did. Despising the shame for the joy that was set before you. Oh Lord, we endure and we despise for the joy that is set before us. The day when as we lean into the tape, we'll fall into your arms and everything we've ever hoped for will be true. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.